All right, kids are dismissed. If you guys are here, children are dismissed to Sunday school. Um, for those of you who are not children, um, I would invite you to take out your Bibles, open them up. We are studying as a church the book of Philippians. And this morning we are in Philippians chapter 2. Specifically, we will be looking at verses 12 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. I love the sound of pages turning. It's like music to my soul. Um, the words will not be on the screen. I encourage you to bring a Bible with you to church every Sunday. Um, I have this wonderful dream of my children walking into church on Sunday morning and to the right and to the left of them they see men and women walking into church with big Bibles in their hands. All right? Big Bibles. Or small Bibles is fine. Any Bible really is okay. Just bring a Bible with, with you to church, okay? Not as many visitors here this morning, so I can be maybe a little more direct. Bring your Bible, okay? Bring your Bible. There are Bibles back there. If you do not have one, there is grace. Praise God for grace. There are Bibles. They will be gifted to you and a sign and a demonstration of grace by Craig Welt himself. All right, so put your hand up if you need one. Put your hand up if you need one. One's coming around. Awesome. Phones are acceptable. Not preferable. Got you? Okay, so that's phones acceptable, but not preferable. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Last week, Pastor Mikhail came, from, uh, came and, and taught on verses 1 through 11. And in those verses, um, we learned about the wonderful example we have of our Lord Jesus Christ through his humiliation and his exaltation. And we were challenged to follow in his footsteps, to be obedient to him, to follow the example that he gave us. Um, this morning, we are going to continue on and, and learn from that example uh, a particular encouragement that Paul is going to give us. So I'm going to read our passage for us, then I will pray and we will, we will dive in. This is verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong part. My bad. I got a new Bible recently. New Bible, okay? And I'm feeling pretty good about this new Bible. But it's a single column. I'm used to double column, you know, the double column Bible, and I'm still trying to find my way through this thing. So chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured, I may be proud that I did not run in labor, run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that comes to us this morning. Lord, I do pray that these words would serve to us as your people, 
Lord, that they would be an encouragement to us, that they would, they would challenge us where we need to be challenged and they would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Father, as we seek to live a life that is obedient to you, Father. Lord, I pray you would take these words, which we believe them to be eternal and absolutely true, Lord, and we ask that you would write them on our very hearts. Spirit, come and show us your Son in these words that the Father may be exalted. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, any of you who have been to my house recently know that in the last couple of years we got a new dog. A new dog. A bit of a, a crazy dog. He's a fun dog. He's a sweet dog. He, we, we got him. He was a little small. It was a small dog. It's, dogs have this way of starting off small and then growing. There was really no, we had no idea how big he was going to become. I mean, there was some indication just in his breed, okay? But we didn't know. Um, he grew up and he became a big, big dog who just throws his weight around constantly and is a bit of a bully, quite honestly. He's a bit of a bully, okay? He's a sweet dog. He's a bully, okay? Um, maybe about a year into this dog, we began to realize that we really needed to get some sort of a way to secure him in the yard, okay? And uh, neighbors, I mean, he's a good dog, wanted to play, but, you know, it's kind of scary looking. If you, if you walk by and see him barking at you, you might be terrified for your life, potentially. Um, so we, we got an electric fence, okay? Got an electric fence, one of those ones that just kind of shoots out a radius around the house, okay? And then, um, you know, just kind of builds a perimeter for which the dog can, can go. Now you put a collar on the dog, and as he gets to that fence, it might beep and warn him it's getting closer, he's getting closer, and then if he gets too close, it'll zap him, right? That's the way it works, okay? Now, there's all different kinds of training manuals and YouTube videos that you can watch as you try to train your dog to become familiar with the perimeter of your house. You put flags up around, right? Um, there's all kinds of ways you can train your dog to become familiar with where that perimeter is. Um, I bought mine used, thank you, Mr. Bachelman. Um and uh, the, the, well, both, the, I guess, the dog and the fence got from Mr. B, so this is really Mr. B's story, it's less my story. Um, but I bought the, 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 the shock collar we got was, was used, okay, and I did not know, I watched the manuals and, you know, the videos and all this, and I saw, okay, this is a big process, I just need a quick fix, right, so went outside to train him, he's a smart dog, and I thought, okay, there the flags are, just get close to the thing, let him get one little zap, and we'll be good to go, right, so we had him out in the yard, and I was walking him around, taking him up to the flags, kind of walking him back, no, 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 you know, kind of showing him where he could go, where he couldn't go, making him familiar with the terrain, and then I just took the, the leash off, and I let him just kind of find out on his own, okay? So he went out there, and he got zapped, right? Now, what I did not know was that there's uh, different levels of zappedness you can get, okay? And so it felt really terrible because I had it apparently turned up pretty high. And uh, he got one zap. Now, he is a big baby, too. He is a big baby, okay? Just He got one zap and instantly just darted towards the house. I mean, like an all-out sprint. Got there, and he was thoroughly, thoroughly confused. I felt really bad, honestly. Felt really bad. Good thing is, he just learned it once. We don't, he doesn't even need a shock collar anymore, right? He just knows where you go and where you don't go, right? But that day, he was incredibly confused as to what happened, and incredibly exhausted. He went in the house, he was panting and sweating, laid down on his bed and just rested and rested and rested. I couldn't get him to go outside for like six to eight hours, okay? Like trying to get him outside. Now here he was, he trusted me, right? He loved me and, and has a certain degree of affection for me. This home that he's in is a home where it is full of love. He's adored and loved. 
But in that, that day, in that moment, he was overwhelmed with confusion and exhaustion. Those two words characterized his day. I think for many of us, the Christian life bears a striking resemblance, dog's name is Eddie, to Eddie on that day. Perhaps your journey as a Christian is one that is similarly marked by confusion and exhaustion. This passage for you this morning should meet you with a tremendous amount of clarity and encouragement. And brothers and sisters, we need it. We need it. Maybe if you think back to your moment of conversion, if you were here this morning, you were a follower of Jesus, if you think about the day that you were converted into Christianity, became a follower of Jesus, most likely it was a moment that was met with tremendous joy and wonder. The reality that your sins had been forgiven. That the atoning work that Jesus would accomplish, had accomplished on the cross, paid for your sins. And through his death, you are united with him, not just in his death, but also in his resurrection. He rose from the dead and, and in doing so made it possible for you, for me, to have a relationship with the God of the universe. This is an amazing, amazing thing. At that moment when you were initially converted, odds are you, you discovered something that was utterly wonderful and completely beautiful. Now with this new identity as a Christian, perhaps you made a few assumptions early in your journey about what life would look like moving forward. Maybe, just maybe, you assumed that life would now become much easier as a Christian, right? Less trial, potentially. Less difficulty. You made the assumption that Growth in godliness was inevitable and effortless. You certainly didn't assume that life could potentially become more difficult, more challenging. You were probably not too far into your journey as a follower of Jesus when you began to notice that in fact you had more trials. Life was more difficult Growth wasn't effortless, and it wasn't necessarily easy. Frustration and exhaustion perhaps began to set in. And as you search for clarity, for some relief, some understanding, you turn to Scripture. You open up the Bible. Yet, you become even more confused. See, you don't suffer from a lack of desire to grow in godliness. Your confusion stems from an uncertainty on how you grow in godliness. As a result, godliness seems distant, quite possibly unlikely. Am I supposed to trust or obey? Is it about ease or effort? Is it really about faith or is it about works? Instead of clarity, you become more confused. Instead of rest and relief, you feel weight. You hear work. So, 
you turn on the Christian radio in your car. And your ears perk up as you hear the morning host say that all you need to do is let go and let God. Maybe listening to the same radio station, I don't know. <laughs> that thought provides some temporary assurance. Yet, in an act of complete and total desperation, in a moment of weakness, you call mom. And she ever so gently reminds you, honey, God helps those who help themselves. Do you see the utter contradiction? Are these things working together? Let go and let God. God helps those who help themselves. Is it about ease? Is it about effort, faith, or works? What in the world are you to do? How do you make sense of it all? For many of us, our frustration, our exhaustion, as we consider the journey toward godliness, many of us simply don't know how. How do we grow? Well, thank God for Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. There are few places in all of Scripture that are more clear on the relationship between our responsibility and God's sovereignty and our sanctification. Our effort and His energy. Our work and His work. Folks, this morning's passage is not just incredibly clear. It's also incredibly encouraging. Because what this text, the revolutionary idea that this text teaches you, regardless of where you are in your journey with Christ, is that growth is possible. And it's not just possible, it is powerful. That's the big idea of the passage this morning. Growth in godliness is possible and it is powerful. Go ahead and look to a neighbor and say, neighbor, 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 you are a piece of work. You're a piece of work. Go ahead, make it fair. Next neighbor next to you, neighbor, I am a piece of work. Right. The truth, folks, this morning, what this passage teaches us is that if you are in Christ, you are a piece of work. You're a piece of work. This morning's passage shows us what this divine workout looks like. The first thing that we see, verses 12 through 13. Now, I just want to warn you up front. Verses 12 and 13 could be about five sermons. They won't be this morning, okay? Try to boil it down. But even as I examine some of the commentaries and some of the books of Philippians, people who have thought deeply, wrote extensively about this wonderful, wonderful letter to the Philippians... Um, these two verses take up more pages than some chapters in certain books, okay? They are deep. What's going on here is, is not just overly complex. It is wonderfully simple, okay? So, first of all, the word therefore. Anytime as 
as a aspiring Bible scholar that you may hope to be or that we should all hope to be, anytime we come across this word, therefore, we should simply ask ourselves a question, which is, what is therefore, therefore? Generally speaking, the word looks back to trace the development of a single thought throughout Scripture, a single argument that is being made. In this case, the thought goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. Let me just read it for us again so we can remember, if I can find it in this new Bible. There it is. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Essentially, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's Paul's exhortation to us, that we behave as citizens of the kingdom, as Christians, as folks who have been transformed by the gospel. That's the exhortation from verses 27 and verse 30 in chapter 1. We see this exhortation to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then last week we looked at verses 1 through 11. We went from an exhortation to an example, a divine example, the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ through obedience. And we are challenged to follow in his footsteps. Next week in chapter 2 verses 19 through 30, we will see the embodiment of this being lived out by local leaders in the congregation. Two leaders who we would do well to emulate. This morning, this passage goes from exhortation, a divine example. 12 and 18 is an encouragement that the life he's calling us to, that this exhortation, this challenge he's given to us, it is possible. You can grow in godliness. Paul's challenge is our directive to grow. God is not simply interested in our deliverance, but he's also interested in our development as Christians. The Christian life is not just about being one to Christ. It's about walking with Christ to grow in godliness. In other words, to live a life that fits the gospel. Verses 12 and 13 show us that this possibility is the result both of our effort and his energy. Both our work and his work. Our responsibility and ultimately his sovereignty. Let's look first, verse 12, at our effort. The charge is to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As we consider these words, let's first consider what they do, are not saying, okay? Because there's been much confusion over these words. And they may, when you read them, you may think to yourself initially, that doesn't sound right. Work out your own salvation. Well, what he's not saying, he's not saying is work for your salvation or work toward your salvation. Work in such a way to earn your salvation. We know he's not saying this because Paul tells us in chapter 1 of verse 1 of chapter 1 that he's writing to folks who are Christians, brothers and sisters who've already received salvation. He says to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Right? So he's already called they are Christians. So they are not working towards their Christianity, right? Because they already are Christians. They are citizens by birth. They are citizens by new birth. We also know he's not saying this because it's not consistent with what else Paul has said throughout the New Testament. So you can examine other places where he has talked about the exact same topic. Some passages that come to mind, Galatians 2.16. Yet you know that a person is not justified 
by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Your justification, he says, is not according to your works. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And perhaps the one that most of us know the best, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is not according to your works. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? This is the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Our justification before God, our salvation in God is not obtained by what we can do, but by what he has done. That is our understanding of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the gospel, that's what makes the gospel such good news. Is your salvation, your position, your relationship with God is not dependent on your ability to perform or to obey even. It's dependent on what he has done. And he offers it freely by grace to you this morning. And the mechanism you, you, by which you use to receive it, the Bible calls it faith. So he isn't, he isn't saying work for your salvation, but neither is he saying, calm down, right? Relax, be cool, right? You're saved, just chill out, just chill out. Just let go and let God. He's clearly not saying that either. The text clearly says, work. On our behalf, effort, work, is involved. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The, the text speaks about this in two different ways. First of all, focuses on our activity. Work out your salvation. We are not passive participants in the process of our personal growth. Our sanctification, our growth in godliness involves activity, demands effort. Later in Chapter 3, verse 13 and 15, listen to how he talks about it. Brothers, I do not consider that you, that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As Paul talks about his life as a Christian, he talks about a life that involves work, straining, pressing on, leaning into in a different book, in 2 Timothy, Paul likens the life of a Christian to the life of a soldier, to that of an athlete, and to that of a farmer. All vocations that are known for action, for training, for work. So what does it mean then to work? It's clear we need to work. But what does that work look like? What does it mean? Well, thankfully for us, he tells us. It's wonderful how he does that. It might be hard to discern initially, but if you just look at the verse and connect the dots, therefore, the way the, the verse should be read just fluidly, therefore, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation. So in the same way that you have always, you have made for yourself a history of obedience. You have been committed to obedience. So now, work out your salvation. 
So what Paul is doing is he's using the words obedience and working out your own salvation interchangeably. So if we want to understand what does it mean to work out our own salvation, we cannot do that properly apart from our understanding of what obedience is and the role that it plays in the life of a follower. There are moments on your journey when the path that Jesus has blazed and we follow will become steep and it will become treacherous. We will be faced as his followers with the temptation to look for an easier, more comfortable way. I think I've probably shared this before, but anytime we drive around town and we may be in a hurry, we may be running late, I know it's hard to imagine that, um, or we're going somewhere fun, my kids are always saying, Dad, did you take the shortcut? Dad, just take the shortcut, right? They, they have this understanding in their mind that there's always a shortcut that's quicker and easier than the path that I go, thinking that for some reason I would choose as the terrible dad that I am to always go the end around long way as long as possible. They don't recognize that every path I'm taking is the shortcut, right? It is the shortcut. They're always looking for a shortcut. And I think as Christians, we meet, we face a very similar temptation in our journey with Jesus, right? It's not that we don't like where we're going necessarily. It's the path that it takes to get there that we would love sometimes to avoid. Maybe there's a shortcut, an easier way to get there, a different path that involves less, less difficulty, less trial, that takes less time. Folks, following in the footsteps of Christ will not always be easy. The world is constantly offering the false promise of an easier, different path, a path that's more fun, one that is shorter, that's more comfortable, that gets us there quicker. Our path is one that is difficult. It involves suffering, often involves rejection, yet we are called to live a life of obedience. Remember, as Paul told us early in verse 8, he, Jesus, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if that's the destiny of our leader, what's in store for us? The other thing that brings some light into what it means to work out our salvation is not just as an idea of obedience, but also this idea of social, corporate harmony within the body of the church. And remember, the whole emphasis in this immediate passage and really throughout the whole book is this importance on social harmony in the church, the unity of the church. Therefore, this call to work out their salvation is a call to restore harmony to the church through service, humble service to one another. That's why Paul is so quick in verse 14 to turn his attention to their social interactions. They should not be grumbling. They should not be disputing, right? Immediate application of this is how they talk to each other. So there are radical social implications. We are to be obedient to Jesus and we are also to the ethic that is that controlling us and constituting how we work together is to be one that is shaped and formed by scripture. 
So this text speaks not just to our activity, but also to our attitude. We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, he tells us. The posture of humility and service is reflected not just in our activity, but also in the attitude we have as we participate in this working out. As they work out their salvation, their attitude toward one another and God himself should be one of fear, he tells us, and trembling. And one of the greatest challenges that we face as we seek to grow in godliness is our self. Obsession with ourself. That's why in verse 3 Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. The best way to dispel this attitude, this this attitude of self-absorption, is with proper fear of the Lord. There was a friend of mine growing up who was um, came from a very successful family. His parents were very very successful. Um, They had a a massive house and just a pool. And growing up, they lived not too far away from us. But the reality of how I grew up and how he grew up couldn't have been further from each other. Okay. And so I can remember we were great friends, still is a good friend of mine. Um, But there was always, and everybody kind of knew it, there was always sort of this sort of arrogance that he kind of had to deal with. This pride that was in him that he just dealt with and and he carried with him for much of his youth. Right? Because he saw how wonderfully he had it made and how comfortable his home was, how successful and wealthy his parents were. And he kind of just walked around with a, a bit of arrogance, just characterized him. Right? It's something that he dealt with. But I can remember as a kid thinking how, how ridiculous it was, right? Because all he did was be born, right? That was his contribution. He was born. Nothing that he had did he contribute to. It all came from his parents. Likewise, our salvation is the result in our sanctification. It is the result. It is the gift from God. It is a result of the grace of God. And our response to that should be one of fear and trembling. It should cause us to be in awe of who God is and what he has done. So that talks about our effort. We are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13, this is where the encouragement comes in. Because as you think, like what is Paul doing? He's exhorting us to be obedient, right? And the example he gives is Jesus himself. And as you think about that, most of us should be overwhelmed. Like, we have to follow in Jesus' footsteps. He died, he gave up his life. Not just his life, but he left the throne in heaven and came down to earth. To a people who were his own, but we learn reject him. That's what he did. And so as we think about what he's calling us to do, that's who we have to follow. And if we're not careful, we can be overwhelmed and intimidated. I don't stand a chance, maybe. Luckily, he goes on to verse 13. That was our work in sanctification. But Paul exhorts us also to be encouraged by God's work. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The working of our salvation is only possible because God has already worked it in. The only reason we have any chance of working it out is because God himself has worked it in us. John Owen says, he works in us and with us, not against us or without us, so that his assistance is an encouragement as to the facilitating of the work. 
brothers and sisters, God's presence is in you, it's in me right now. He is at work in us right now. He is directing, he is strengthening, he is sustaining and keeping. Not just our resolve, our desire to work, but our work itself. It is a result of God's working in us. We work because he first worked and continues to work. And what a relief, what an absolute encouragement this should be to us this morning. As you consider the possibility of growth, the frustration from an apparent lack of growth, or the exhaustion when you think of the amount of growth you want to see happen. This word reminds us, you are not limited. You are not Limited, your circumstances, your track record, your experience or inexperience does not limit you with the growth that you want to see in your life. You are not limited because the one working in you is limitless. Right? So the goal that we think of, I don't know if you're like me, but I often think of where I want to be as a follower of Jesus. And when I think of where I am currently, I can grow frustrated by the distance that exists between those two realities. The Bible is telling us, Paul is saying, that the limits of our growth in godliness, the sky is the limit. God does not have limits. And he's the one who's working in you. In fact, apart from God's work, even our best effort is meaningless. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is why we must show as a people an absolute resolve not just to be obedient to Jesus, but also to be on our knees, calling out regularly, praying that God would do a work in us, that he would be the one who would work through us. This is why we want to, as a church, as a people, prioritize prayer. Right, Because I know it's not easy coming, some of us struggle getting here at 10.30, right? And then the fact that the pastor's going to stand up here and say, hey, next week I want to see you at 9 o'clock, right? Like, watch out, right? And I'm not saying if you're not there, you're disobedient. I'm not saying that at all, okay? But I am saying there is so much power. There is so much power when God's people submit to God through prayer. And they call on him to intervene and to work, Right? And so as a church, we want to prioritize this. And prioritizing, it means we need to make space for it. So I would encourage you next week, come, pray, 9 o'clock. The last thing we've seen, and I'll just keep this one short, verses 14 through 18. Like I said before, verses 12 and 13, there's so much meat there. There's so much meat there. Verses 14 through 18 really show us, if those first two verses showed us the possibility of growth and how that can happen, verses 14 through 18 show us the power of growth. When it happens, what else can happen, right? Your growth in godliness, your sanctification, is not just about you. Neither is it primarily for you. There is something that's so sweet, that's so personal and individual about your spiritual life. And the joy and we, that we experience from growth as we grow in godliness. Something really wonderful about that on an individual level. Yet there's something that's much larger at stake. Against the backdrop of a corrupt generation, the Christian community in Philippi was to provide a striking contrast. As we read verses 14 and 15, 
the image that should come to our mind is an image from the Old Testament. The image that was certainly, it's the same image that was certainly at the fore of Paul's mind, was that of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Maybe you know the story. We know that that is exactly what Paul is thinking because essentially he quotes the song of Moses that's found in Deuteronomy 32, verses 5, which is why I read that at the beginning of the service. It says this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So as Paul writes this exhortation, this encouragement to the Philippians, he is thinking about God's dealing in redemptive history through the people of Israel and their journey. In Israel, in Israel God made for himself a people. He acted in miraculous ways to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh, from slavery. They were not mighty. They were not necessarily more numerous or resourceful than any other people on earth. They were not unique in any way except that God loved them. That was the sole reason for their deliverance. Yet while in the wilderness, if they could have their way, they would have returned to bondage, returned to Egypt. They would rather be slaves in a foreign land than free men and women on the way to the promised land. So they began to grumble. They began to complain. Their displeasure was not necessarily with each other. It was directed with Moses, ultimately, toward God for what he had done. This grumbling, this complaining and dissension was not at all, was not supposed to characterize God's people. God had a totally different plan for what his people, the purpose his people were to accomplish. I just want to read a few verses in Exodus chapter 19, just real quick. This is verse 4 and 5 in chapter 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, by establishing his covenant with Israel setting them apart as a treasured possession, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God intended that, 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 that they actively would represent him to all the other peoples, right? So if you wanted to get an idea in the Old Testament of what God was like, the one true God of heaven and earth, you could look at his people. And their obedience to his law, the way that they lived, not just among themselves, but among the other nations, they would be a witness to God himself, light in darkness. And just as the Israelites were called to live lives of distinctive ethical holiness in the sight of the nations, so Paul urges the Christians here at Philippi to remember that they were being watched and need to behave in ways that commend the gospel. So Paul is reminding them of how God dealt with Israel, how Israel was designed in their purpose in the world. And he's saying, listen, as a Christian community, the way you conduct yourselves, the way you relate to one another, the way you complain or don't complain is a testimony to him. We are, by definition, as God's people, a witnessing people. We are to be a shining community. 
Daniel 12, verse 3 says exactly the same thing, that there will be a people because of their wisdom, they will shine like stars in the night sky. Matthew 5, 14 and 15 is exactly what Jesus has commanded us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That we should be a city that's set on a hill. We should be people who, are, who bring light into darkness. How do we do that? Well, not by grumbling and complaining amongst ourselves. Rather, by holding fast to the word of life. The hope of the gospel is to be put on display through our lives. And as we hold to the word of life and hold out the word of life, we act as light bearers. As we are obedient to what God has called us to do, as we watch the interactions that we have with each other, the types of words that we use, even in conversation, as we are obedient to the life that he has called us to, the Bible says we shine like stars. We shine in the darkness. Calling people out of darkness and in to the marvelous light. So folks, your sanctification, your growth, God is very concerned about it. He's concerned about my growth in godliness. But he's concerned about it not just for me. This is a part of his plan to put his glory on display. It says at the end of verse 13, it's for his pleasure. And when we unite with him in his eternal plan for his glory, for his pleasure, the result at the end of verse 18 says that we can be glad and rejoice as well. And so although it's for his pleasure, when we sign up for it, when we're along for the ride, you know what else who sees joy and pleasure? You and me. We're the direct beneficiaries of it as well. So this is a part of God's massive plan. So when we think about our life, our salvation, our sanctification, our growth, we need to take it seriously. We need to be at work because God is at work. So just two things in closing. One, examine your life. And this is something we have to make a regular practice of doing. Honestly, probably a daily practice. A lot of times this is a great prayer to pray at the end, right before, at the end of your day, right before you go to sleep. Look back at your day, recount the words that came out of your mouth, the interactions you had, the things that you watched on TV or on your phone. And ask, examine those things. Were those aligned with God's will? Were you obedient to his word? And if not, confess those things before God. Ask for his forgiveness. And the next thing that we should do is we should also be encouraged. Because there's plenty of moments in our life, on our journey, where we may not think that we're moving the ball down the field. That we may grow frustrated, we may grow exhausted for what appears to be some sort of a lack of growth. Be encouraged. God is in you. As you work out your salvation, it's the direct result of God stirring inside of you. He is the one who works, and God is limitless. Therefore, your growth is possible. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much just for this reality this morning. We just confess to you that we are a broken and a needy people. Lord, that we are apart from you. We don't really stand a chance where any of this growth is concerned. Lord, thank you that um, you don't expect us to be, to be perfect. Um, but your son was that for us. And Lord, I just pray that as we um, just continue to worship and even prepare to leave here this morning, Lord, that you would show us just really clearly in our life 
areas where we are disobedient to you. Maybe areas in our life where, um, where we should see growth. But we thank you that you take our salvation so seriously. Lord, and I pray that we would as a people take it seriously as well. We ask these things in your holy and precious name.